Welcome to the Novice No Longer Podcast, episode 14. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Novice No Longer Podcast, where every week I help you build better products and get the press you deserve. This week, I get to talk about one of my favorite topics ever, which is user experience. I really like user experience because it's about way more than building a website that people can use and that's easy to use and all that stuff because it's also really about the psychology of the user and what the user is actually trying to do whether the user actually knows it or not. So my guest this week is Mona Patel, and she is the founder and CEO of Motivate Design and UX Hires, and she is absolutely passionate about user experience. This conversation is one of my favorite that I've had. It's just so interesting to me. And she even shares some of her thoughts about virtual reality, which Facebook just buying Oculus, that's absolutely insane to me. So she shares her thoughts about why that is so important, why they made might have made that purchase. And she has some stuff about virtual reality that I had honestly never thought of. And it makes me even more excited for the future. So you have to check that out. And before we jump in, I do want to briefly mention my sponsor, or should I say my non-sponsor, because this is really my developer, the person that I use to build uh, both of my mobile apps, as well as my OSX app that I just released, Workburst. So I want to thank Planet 1107. They're based in Croatia. They're absolutely amazing. And if you have an idea for a mobile application, but you don't know your next steps, you should contact Planet 1107. They will not only build you the app, but they will also submit it to the app store for you. And best of all, you own all the source code. They're not going to keep anything for themselves. And that's really, really important. And if there's any bugs, if there's anything like that, they fix it for free. I had some issues with my app Workburst and the, the guy, he was up till all hours of the night fixing it, submitting it for me. It was amazing. Immediately, immediately got things taken care of and they guarantee a working product. So they only charge $40 an hour, which is absolutely insane if you've researched this. And better than that, I've negotiated with them. I've worked it out for you guys. You get 10% off your order. So it go to their website. It's planet1107.net slash NNL. NNL is for novice no longer. And submit there. They, they'll give you a quote, talk some numbers, and get your app finally built. So enough about that. Let's just jump right into this because this is a great episode. Here is Mona Patel. My name is Dan, and you are listening to the Novice No Longer podcast. My guest today is Mona Patel, who, as she says, has been disrupting the user experience space since before it was cool. She is the founder and CEO of UX Hires and Motivate Design, and I'm absolutely honored to have her on the show today. Mona, welcome to the show. Dan, you're so sweet. Thank you so much. Yeah, of course. Um, So I wanted to start off this episode by kind of defining terms, because I feel like a lot of people use the term user experience, but don't (laughs) actually know what it means. So it's kind of a broad question, but what does user experience mean to you? What it means to me that, I mean, it really is a broad question and you know, it has changed so much since I started doing this that I think the reason why the the term is so vague is that it, you know, it it keeps changing. It it is something that hasn't really been defined um, in a way that everyone can understand. But for me, uh, it's about putting the user in the center of the design process and designing the entire experience around making sure that user is efficient and happy. 
in their interaction. So um, typically it's thought of in terms of an interface, but for what we've been doing, it has been uh, much broader and more around the service and making sure any service that you provide, any brand that exists has accommodated for the user's needs uh, as an integral part of the overall strategy. Mm -hmm. And I I think that's really important because user experience kind of as a term, I I mostly started seeing it around when the internet first started and building websites. But as we've gotten more devices like a a smartphone or we're getting into virtual reality, which I actually have some questions for about uh, about for you later, but user experience is not just about the layout of whatever you're designing. Like it's about the entire how you use a device, like how you use a laptop, how you use a smartphone. That's all user experience. Yeah, it's even broader, actually. So I would say, you know, it started absolutely with kind of technology and it was usability, which was, you know, can people find what they need to find? So we were focused on making things easy and intuitive. And over time, we realized, you know what, that's not enough. Um, Sometimes you interact with things like virtual reality or games where it's not even meant to be easy. And it's okay because it fulfills another need, a need uh, for significance or a need for challenge, a need for social acceptance. And so the idea of user experience really started to come into play when people understood that the psychology of how people think and what they want, their behavior, their cognition um, are equally weighted. You know, so it's not just about how I think and what my limitations are, but what I want out of an experience. Uh, And so usability kind of morphed into user experience. And that's kind of morphing into, you know, whether it's customer experience or experience design, again, the terms are all over the place uh, and maybe on purpose so that people feel that they own them. (laughs) But, you know, the idea is uh, people are so um, diverse in what they need, uh, what they need. Have we accommodated for that with the design? Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about your story and how you started getting involved in the user experience field and what you're doing now. Yeah, absolutely. So I went to Tufts University and I was lucky enough to be at a school where they had a program called engineering psychology, which was also called human factors. I think we're starting to see a theme with terms here. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, But the, uh, the, the focus of the program was half your, um, half your classes were in psychology around behavior, cognition, memory, things like that. And half your classes were in mechanical engineering. So building things. And they kind of put the degree together so that it was the understanding or the psychology of design. Um, and I loved it. I loved it. I love, I've always been interested in psychology and kind of how people think, but it didn't feel, um, concrete enough for me. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't enough to just understand it. I wanted to do something with that understanding. So I kind of got addicted to using both sides of my brain in one field, you know, the, the, the analytical and the creative. And when I left Tufts, I, Uh, worked at a company, a consulting firm that focused on usability, just helping other software companies primarily, but I did a little bit with medical devices and consumer products, um, helping to make sure that the people who use them wouldn't have any problems. And one of the projects that I ended up landing on was one of my first website projects was a launch of a pretty fun car. It was uh, the Mini. Um, BMW was introducing it in the U.S. And in doing the research, I realized that although the website was difficult to use, people didn't care. They were so excited about the brand. They were so excited about um, having that car and you know being able to drive it in the U.S. that the usability didn't matter. And that led me to getting a master's in marketing and kind of understanding that it isn't just about making things easy, but making things fun and engaging and connecting 
with customers. And that's what I've been doing for the past 10 years or so. I started Motivate Design five years ago um, with the idea that, you know what, that's all I want to do. Just kind of focus on what drives people and building designs to match that drive. Oh, it's so interesting, especially the the story about the mini, because there's been so many times, especially being just in love as I am with technology and like the latest things, I'll go to a little website that's just really poorly thrown together. But because the technology is so new and exciting, it's something I want to have and play with. Like, I don't even mind that the site just looks terrible because it's the information, it's the product, it's, it's that stuff that I want. So that, that steering that towards the marketing for you is a, a really interesting uh, thing to me. That's exactly it. I remember, I mean, this is going to date me, but it was a 56K modem, you know, that people are expected to be on this site with. It was 640 by 480 resolution. Uh-huh, so uh-huh. design. And there were these little um, kind of globes that floated around the screen and you had to catch one to open it up. And that's how you navigated through the site. Oh man, I remember <laughs> websites like that. <laughs> I know. <it> was ridiculous. <laughs> uh-huh. But loved it because you know what ended up happening is that they you know that that little globe would open up like the best places to stop on a on a road trip between here and boston Mm -hmm. and you know that's what you do with your car you drive and so when you ask people like where would you find a dealer they didn't care because you know what i will find the dealer to get this car Mm -hmm. Um, and it just it really opened my eyes i was just i was really lucky again you know just like tops i was really lucky to have that project at the time in my life where i was getting bored with usability and feeling like you know i don't really care if people can do x y and z online it's not really fun and engaging i'm not feeling like i'm tapping into the psychology of people as much anymore and you know it, it allowed me to realize the the mix for me at least was between kind of design psychology and business which was my marketing degree mm-hmm. and so you mentioned that you took that passion and turned that into motivate design tell me a little bit more about that process and how motivate design came into existence <laughs> so i'm going to tell you the honest truth mm-hmm. uh, i was working at an organization where uh, it was more of a management role um, I was managing a fairly large team that did training and, uh, and also consulting. And it was great. The people that I worked with were, were fantastic. But through a series of kind of management decisions, I was feeling um, just like I didn't, I didn't agree with the way uh, I, I would want to run things. And so I went away on vacation. And I remember kind of relaxing. A lot of my best ideas come from going away on vacation, I've realized since then. And on my way back, I remember landing in Newark and uh, still on the runway, I turned uh, and I said, I don't really want to go to work. And we were with a couple friends and, you know, I said, well, who wants to go to work? No one wants to go to work. But I had already started dialing on my phone. And he called my boss and said, you know, I'll give you as much time as you want, but I just don't feel like I fit anymore. I want to create a space where I fit. And after I left, a large part of what I did is a reflection around well, what do I want to create? You know, I want to create a place where it's an agency because I like kind of hopping from one project to another, but it's not about taking credit for the ideas. We love to have them uh, and we still do. You know, a lot of times our clients will call us and say, you know, go, just go do a project, but it's becoming rare and rare. What I wanted to build is an agency where we partnered with uh, internal folks and came up with better ideas than we could do on our own or they could do on their own. And it requires a lot of humility because that's not typically how agencies work. Um, but it was really exciting to me uh, to kind of help people, you know, to help uh, internal folks build better products. Um, so that's been kind of the, the driving force for 
the last couple of years. Um, I didn't even think I was going to have a company. Honestly, I, you know, I, I registered an LLC because, um, something in my, in my gut said, that's probably a good idea in case you want to add people and you want to pay people and you want to get paid and, you know, you don't want your name associated with anything. Um, and just by chance, I had gotten pregnant with my first child and I had to stop working to have the children, to have, to have my mm-hmm. older son. And so I started thinking, well, I got to add contractors. I got to, you know, grow to keep the work that I have. It wasn't even about, you know, growing into an agency yet. It was just, I love the clients that I work with. I need to take care of them. So let me find some of the best people that I've worked with in the past, add them onto the team, and they'll take care of it while I go have this baby. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I did that, I realized I like managing. This is fun. Mm -hmm. You know, I actually like uh, building the relationship and then finding people who are better than me uh, and giving it to them to to take care of and do. And so it kind of grew from there. Uh, I think that's a really amazing story, and I actually relate to it a lot. Just last year, I was working for a a publication that I absolutely love. I was writing as the reviews editor at The Verge, and I ended up going on vacation because it was my parents' 30th anniversary, and we took a cruise out to Alaska. And just on the cruise, there was a couple of things I needed to quickly finish, and I just found myself just feeling like this wasn't exactly what I was meant to do. This wasn't how... I wanted to spend my time and it was a tough decision because up until then that had been like my dream job. But I ended up coming back, reconciling those thoughts and uh, from leaving the verge, uh, novice no longer launched. I'm working on a bunch of other stuff and I'm just happier than I've ever been. That's how I feel. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly how I feel. And you know, as I've grown, I realize how much I rely on intuition, uh, to lead and, people have told me, you know, you read the, you read the books and you listen to people who have done this before. And they, you know, a lot of the advice I've gotten is to bring on a kind of co-founder or to partner up or to, you know, merge. And I've never, none of that has ever felt right to me. You know, it's, it's always been, how do I justify when I feel a certain way about a person I want to bring them on? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those, those decisions that I make that are all intuitive, I trust. Uh, and it's, it's taken a long time to come to the point where you can trust that. Um, but this feels so right. Even what we're doing today, when I come into the office, I kind of check in almost every day. It feels right. It feels like a good use of my time and a good use of my skills to be doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing that you talk about intuition because I feel like there's so many founders, CEOs, entrepreneurs that talk about intuition. And if you are just starting off on the path, it can be kind of murky it's more cloudy because when you're actually making those decisions at least for me it was just absolutely hard and i i was like i'm making the wrong decision what am i doing like i was second guessing everything but really it going with your intuition is what you have to do you're absolutely right i think at the very beginning you you know because you still feel your stomach drop when you make a big decision based on intuition Mm -hmm. and at the beginning you get scared by it and you say, oh my God, this is wrong. This is wrong. Like that's, you know, that's my body telling me that it's wrong. But I think at this point you realize, you know what, this is a roller coaster ride. The whole point is to have that feeling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, exactly. Yeah. It's the fun. It's actually very fun. Um, and the more you do it, the more you kind of trust your gut around it. And you realize, you know, if you stay present and you kind of stay on the, the intuitive track, if you did go the wrong way, you're going to figure it out soon mm-hmm. and you'll just pivot. You'll turn around and do something else. Exactly, because it, it's all about gaining the knowledge so that if, if, so, if something doesn't work out, there's other things you can try and do. And yeah, I, I definitely believe that. It, it's very empowering. It feel, and it, like I said, it feels really good to come to work um, 
knowing that and believing that it, it's a good, smart way to run. Mm-hmm. So going back to Motivate Design, now, if what, what kind of problems will a company be having or what will they want to do that they would approach you and uh, use your services? Absolutely. So I would say when we first started out, uh, a company that would, would come to us because they had an experience. Typically, it was uh, you know a website or a software product or a mobile app that wasn't performing to their liking, and they had a hypothesis that it was because they weren't meeting user needs. And our role was to validate that hypothesis or give them a new one. So that would be where research fit in, or and or redesign it so that it's better. And that's where our design services came in. I would say today, what I'm very excited about the shift that's happened at Motivate, which is I would say 80%, maybe 90% of our work, we're not fixing anything that already exists. We're helping them come up with something new. So a bank will come to us and say, you know, we're sick of what we have. We don't want you to spend time trying to fix it and and put band-aids on a problem. We want you to be our surgeons. You know, tell us what's wrong and give us some inspiration of where we can go. Knowing what you know about our target audience, knowing what you know about the way we run our business and how we differentiate with other banks, you know, what, what is it that you would recommend to us? And we still grounded in research, but we do research in a bit, uh, in a different way. We don't do focus groups. We do kind of a, a more innovative session with friends uh, to get to some of this. And then we run workshops and we don't go away. We try not to go away. And, you know, come up with the miraculous idea, but rather, again, like I was saying, work with the internal team to come up with, with what the future of this bank's vision is going to be, or what the future of a website is going to be, or uh, a store design and how tablets are going to transform a kid's store. Mm-hmm. Um, these are the kinds of projects that we've been excited about and wanted to get for a couple of years, and they're just coming to us last year and this year. That's awesome. And I wanted to talk to you. Uh, you mentioned research a little bit. And I, I feel like a lot of people that are just getting into user experience or exploring the field will just immediately think, like we were saying before, that it's about how you use a product. But if if you're looking in and you're trying to create a good user experience, having that solid research is key. You had mentioned yeah. that you guys do it a little bit differently with friends and workshops. Can you go into a little bit more detail about that? Absolutely. Absolutely. So there's, uh, I know I was thinking through kind of the research that we've been most excited about the research that tends to work for us the most. And I would say there's probably, um, three main techniques. One is ethnography. Um, and it's obviously a lighter version of the real ethnography, but spending a, a large amount of time with a person, uh, but, or, or a group of people and really getting to know them you know, really getting to know their context, you know, their home, their work environment, how how they think, how they make decisions, what they're surrounded with. That insight really helps us lead into more innovative solutions versus a one hour um, in-depth interview in a focus group facility, for example. So, you know, getting to the user where they live and really understanding it in a deep way, that's one way. The second is bringing that to us. So when, um, when we need to actually do something in a facility or in a space, rather than picking eight people that don't know each other and bringing them into a room and running kind of a moderated study, we're learning that it has been more powerful to have one person bring two people that he or she knows well that meet a criteria like the most creative person you know or the person who knows most about banking and leading them through a set of uh, hands-on activities. 
and using those to kind of figure out, well, how did they make a decision or what did they focus on? Uh, what was important to them rather than just asking them point blank. That's been kind of the second technique. And then the third has been longitudinal. So again, rather than that one-on-one in-depth interview that you do in a lab, which is more traditional usability, you know, recruiting a set of 50 people and having them uh, in an online community for six months or a year where you can ask them questions as they come up through your design process and get insight as you need it. Um, those have been kind of the, the three most powerful ways that we've been using research to inform design. Interesting. Interesting. I really like that idea of the bringing the friends in too, because yeah. I feel like when people are operating or, or existing or interacting with things, they're they're not alone, and they they have friends, they have people around, they have even if they're not next to them, they have them in their mind. So, like adding that different dynamic just gives a, a richer set of data. That's actually really interesting. It does, and it also uh, provides a check and balance. So, you know, me and my two best friends. If I come in and I say I don't budget, they can catch me. They, they can call me out on it. They say, of course you do. Remember when we wanted to go on vacation, you said we couldn't do blah, blah, blah. And that comes up in the conversation. The moderator takes a back seat. And, uh, you know, the, the friendship groups kind of facilitate themselves. Uh, you know, you guide them through the activities, but they really give you a, a depth and a richness of information that you can't get from people who don't know each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think one of the biggest challenges that I've found when I'm helping people that I'm teaching how to build apps and they're brand new to this is they'll come up with an idea and they'll, they'll go out and they'll ask people about the idea because they know they need to like go out and talk to people, but they just ask too many leading questions. And rather than actually listening to the user and what you really got to do is listen to the user, figure out what their problem is, what they see as their problem, which sometimes are two different things, and then figure out the solution that would be better for them. Absolutely. And I would say, you know, there's even a whole um, kind of category where there's no problem. It's just, you know, you're creating something that, that, that solves a non-problem, but it's fun or it's exciting or it's engaging or it's a game, um, you know, or it, it provides a release that, that they didn't even, they could never articulate. And that's, that's fun too. The observation is key. I, I absolutely agree with you. And I think we, as practitioners, have maybe gotten too close and comfortable to just asking people, what do you think about this? Or talk to me as you, as you explore this. And less talking, more watching uh, really does help. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about running a, a user experience, I guess, agency. I mean, the user experience company during a time when such a new transformative technology like the tablet becomes introduced and just gains in popularity because that's like brand new territory that you're kind of branching off of in the middle of doing your business. What was that kind of experience like? You know, I think it's not a user experience. That's one of the tenets, I feel like, that the technology keeps evolving, but the psychology remains the same. So it doesn't matter if it's a tablet. It doesn't matter if it's wearable. It doesn't matter because even the, even the, I'm thinking through the first couple of projects that I did back in, in the 90s was about the first digital camera or the first iPod. You know, and so every, every um, couple years, every year, in my opinion, actually, uh, there's always been a disruptive technology that's come in and it's still been around what is the need? You know, what is the need from the, the user's perspective and how is this going to fulfill their need? Um, we were already seeing people talking about the laptop getting hot in their lap as they were watching TV, as you know, they were doing X, Y, and Z, um, before the, the tablet was introduced. So we could kind of see what the problem, what problem it solved. We also saw that it was a fun and engaging way to, to interact with stuff that 
needed that element. So a lot of publications and newspapers, for example, TV, um, you know, we were already hearing that before the tablet was even introduced. And so it was easy for us to kind of move the conversation forward with, with, well, how does this fit your life? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the interesting thing to me about smartphones and tablets is a friend of mine was telling me, at least for his company, he's the developer there and they have a website, a smartphone app and a tablet app. And the thing that he was saying to me is if a user signs up on their tablet, the majority use it uh, use the service on their tablet. They're not signing up for their tablet and the majority using it on their computer. Like wherever a user signs up is where they spend the majority of the time, which is something I never really, really would have thought about because I would think about, okay, this is a web service and then we have an app and then the web service is still main. But really, it, you have to pay attention to the way people are using their devices and tailor the experience to that. Absolutely. You know, was, uh, some of the research that we did in December, um, we did with kind of an older population thinking about a particular vertical. And it was really, really interesting that um, we talk, just by chance, we talked to people who don't have a computer at home, but have a, have a tablet. You know, they were kind of enamored with the, the perceived ease of use. Um, they love the entire shopping experience. But in this case, they were both... Um, both uh, iPads, so the whole Apple experience, um, but they they don't have a laptop. They don't have a desktop. All of all of their internet browsing will be done on a tablet. Mm-hmm. They don't have a smartphone either, which was really interesting. Hmm. Yeah, my mom uses a tablet as her main. She she does have. I think my dad's old iPhone, but right. she she doesn't use that for web browsing or anything. It, it's all on the iPad. Exactly. It's it's. I mean, it's just fascinating uh, the ne- the niche that that has built. Mm-hmm. Now, the interesting thing to me, and we're just kind of experiencing it, and it was breaking news, uh, I would say this week, but this is actually going to be airing next week. So last week, that Facebook just bought Oculus, which is the maker of the Oculus Rift, which is a headset. And people were kind of thinking about, or a virtual reality headset, and people were thinking about why that could be. And really, Facebook is making a bet that virtual reality is going to be the next big platform, just like a tablet or a smartphone. Like It's going to be a way that people interact with technology, which is why they want it. And it's interesting how you said that the psychology same stays the same, even as technology advances, because if that is the next big leap, that's going to have a huge impact on the landscape and all of the work that people that do user experience are doing. Absolutely. And, and, you know, in this case, the psychology, I've been thinking about this, just not enough, but just for a couple of minutes um, in my, on my commute here. It's funny that you bring it up today. You know, I think the, the psychology or the need that it's going to fulfill is, the, is I want to be in multiple places at once. And virtual reality allows for that. Or I want to be a different person than I am today. And virtual reality allows for that too. So, you know, if you want to learn, you could actually be in a, a be transposed and be in a classroom. Um, without actually moving. And then in a minute later, also be in a, on an airplane. And a minute later, also be uh, back where you are. And that power, I think, is going to be addictive for the psychology, the, you know, the superhuman aspect of it. So it's really interesting. I think it's going to be a fantastic bet. In my, you know, in my humble opinion. <laughs> yeah, I didn't. I didn't even think about classrooms. That's so interesting. Because after I graduated college, I went on to, and I was thinking about taking online classes and all these things. But I just really missed the classroom experience, like being yeah. there, having a teacher in front of me, looking around, and being able to put on a headset. And obviously, it's not exactly the same, but pretty much you're there. It's I, I've worn the Oculus Rift before. You're you're there, and that would just be amazing. That would change so much. Exactly. And so then it turns into what experiences 
you know, you, you kind of to use your spectrum of total experiences and there's going to be on the left-hand side, a set of them that you don't mind doing through a virtual reality uh, in, uh, experience because of the value that you get and the speed and the, you know, some of the more rational components of being able to take a class at Stanford and take another one at Harvard uh, back to back. You know, so some of those things you're going to, you're going to skew towards having in a more virtual way versus a vacation where, you know, you actually want to be there. There's a, there's a whole other element to it, but maybe I want one day to be looking at the landscape of Alaska and another day to be looking at the landscape of Bermuda. Uh, and I can do that. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. So going back to user experience, uh, uh, a little bit more in just terms of like apps and projects. If there's somebody who's listening to this podcast, who's working on their first, uh, his or her first app or website, is there anything that they can do or that they should be thinking about that they can improve the user experience? Uh, in, well, it depends on the app. Uh, unfortunately, I hate to say it depends. It's one of my, my pet peeves of other people, but of course, of course I feel like I drop it every week. Um, it, it really depends on the space that you're trying to, to fulfill, but you know, think through whether you're looking for an incremental improvement over something that already exists, in which case focus on design patterns and kind of making sure that the experience is easier. Uh, or if it's uh, an area you're looking to disrupt, you know, something that doesn't exist yet that you think could change uh, the way people interact, in which case focus on the psychology. Um, you should obviously be doing both, but if you have to focus your energy in one way or another, I think it kind of breaks down in that way. Mm. Interesting. Interesting. So I want to go, I keep saying this, I want to go back a little bit more because this is so interesting to the founding of Motivate Design. And you started, you brought on the team because you, you got pregnant and you brought all these people around you. What was it like to kind of build that team and foster that, culture in a new environment that you were working in? Completely scary. Um, luckily, I didn't even notice I was doing it till it was done. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> that is really lucky. Yeah. So the first, um, the first set of people that I brought on were contractors and I, I did appreciate working with them. They were senior. They kind of had the same amount of experience that I did. So my logic was, you know, I won't need to micromanage. I won't need to, um, think about this too much. They're going to do the same thing that I would do. And what I realized is that's not the case. Um, you know, people like to be managed in a way, if you know how to manage people well, they like to be managed by you. You know, they like the positive reinforcement. They like the, um, the feedback on where they can improve. They like the camaraderie. And when you have contractors, you think that, you know, I don't really need to do all that, but you do. And so once I realized that, I, I decided this is the time for me to kind of shape the kind of people I want to work with and the kind of people that I feel will be will uh, kind of uh, benefit the most from the kind of mentorship style that I have. So I recruited out of school to start. Um, it was uh, three or four uh, people that I just thought had amazing talent. And I could see that talent really going nowhere at a corporation where they wouldn't get the, the level of mentoring that I had intended on doing. So that was kind of my first um, set of hires. And then the second thing is I realized a, a huge weakness in me, which is when I focus too much on money, I don't make the same decisions as if I, if I don't. And so I hired a phenomenal operations person who's still here and kind of runs all the money. And I check in every week to know kind of what's coming in, what's going out, making sure that we're moving in the right direction. But if I focus, again, like I said, if I, if I think about it too much, I become more conservative than I should be. Um, so that was kind of the second. And then the third was uh, once we had a lot of junior staff here realizing, you know, I can't manage everyone. I'm a bottleneck. 
you know, every project needs me on it and I'm, I'm operating more like a uh, operator, not an owner. And so to, to really be in a space where I can take two weeks off and the company still runs, I can't be on every project. So I started bringing in the best senior people that, you know, I've either worked with in the past or I could find, um, to, to lead the work and, and then was open, I would say is the fourth element was open to seeing that, wow, they do it better than I do. (laughs) They actually know it much better than I do and letting go of, uh, what I thought I was best at, which is the relationships with clients and saying, you know what, I've hired people who can do this better. Uh, and that's been the culture is to kind of, uh, one up the team in a, in a more, in a positive way. Yeah. Talking to entrepreneurs, I just see that constantly. The, they all have the ability to recognize where their strengths are and also where their weaknesses are. And they also they have the ability to hire amazing people and just build an amazing team because that's what builds great companies. And that's really where great ideas come from is interesting, intelligent people congregating and doing stuff, building stuff. And the ability to organize that is just amazing. And that's the, it sounds like that's what you've done. I really, it is. And it's the thing I'm most proud of. It's probably the thing we get the most compliments on too. I mean, I would say every client that works with us loves this team and, you know, to, to hear words like love in a business environment, that's already fulfilling. But then when you hear this is the best team I've worked with, or, you know, this is really, 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 really amazing. And these are just two emails I got today. Uh, it feels so good. Yeah, I, I can imagine. Now, were there any challenges that you ran into that you really weren't expecting? Um, always, always. I think, um, you know, for in terms of personnel and hiring, there were, I would say two people total in the last five years that I would look back and say, I, sh- I probably was too optimistic on how much mentoring I could have offered that person. You know, uh, and someone this week really helped me with the, with the words around this. There's yes people and no people, she said. And I, I love the way she said that. She said, there's people that when you give them a problem, they may not know how to solve it, but it's always yes, I'm going to figure it out. Yes, I'll do it. Yes, I'm going to learn something from it if I do it wrong. And then you have your no people who are, well, that's not my job. This is not something I've done before. I need more budget, I, you know, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And I, I think when I think of it that way, I hired, I've hired two no people inadvertently and everyone else has been a yes person. No people don't make it here in this culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so they've kind of filtered out automatically. But I would think that was one of my bigger mistakes is not figuring this formula out earlier. Because now that I know it, it it's been really helpful. Yeah, that's interesting because that, that's a whole entrepreneur mindset is, okay, I want to do this. I can do it. How can I do it? And you can figure it out. And I, I think that just having that kind of drive and the ability to understand your potential for stuff is really important. And it really adds, it, it's what adds to a great team. It really does. And, and when you are, I think, an entrepreneur and a yes person, no people drive you crazy. Mm-hmm. They get under your skin and it's like, come on, how many stories do you have? You know, how many, how many excuses do you have around why you can't do something? Um, and so, yeah, I I absolutely like attracts like, uh, and so one big thing for me is to make sure that there's always yes people. I think otherwise, um, other mistakes that we've made have been to be maybe too safe. You know, we're just now doing the work where it's all future looking and I would have loved to do this 10 years ago, but I was so good at fixing what's broken. And so like a crutch, you know, you do what you're, you're great at. Um, and I think if I had maybe jumped and, 
uh, taken the risk earlier, I would be doing more of it now. Then again, you know, everything happens at the time that it's supposed to happen. So I don't beat myself too up too much about that one, but you know, I'm really excited about where we are now and, uh, I want to stay here. Awesome. Awesome. Now I wanted to briefly touch too on, you run a local meetup here. That's the UX lab that I just found really interesting where startups or companies can come in and people go to the meetup and just discuss user experience and improve things. And I wanted to talk to you about how community outreach, uh, you see that as being part of motivate designs. It's, it's a part of, um, I think it's definitely a part of motivate design. It's definitely a part of me. And maybe that's why it's a part of motivate design. You know, our most senior people also teach at, uh, at universities, this giving back and helping people come into the field, embracing them and kind of giving them a hug into the field of user experience has always been a part of who I, uh, uh who I am and also who I'm attracted to in terms of working with. So I think that was natural. Sean, uh, and his, uh, another woman, Megan, fantastic. They've taken the lead on, um, the UX lab and it is unbelievable how fast it's grown because they do exactly what I just said. I mean, they give everyone the biggest hug and welcome them in to this community. This field is so attractive. You know, so if you are a graphic designer, if you're a technical writer, if you're a developer and you hear about user experience more often than not, you want a little bit of it. You know, because it has that magic chemistry of analytical and creative and whatever you're used to doing, you want a little bit of, of the other. Um, and so this, this outreach that they've done, they've made it just a really approachable way to learn about user experience. I, you know, I am a huge fan of some of the longer standing communities like the User Experience Professional Association and the IXTA. I go to those meetups. I uh, know the people who run them, huge fans of them, but I think where UX Lab has been different, and again, I can say it because I'm looking from the outside, Sean and, and Megan really are the ones uh, hands-on that do all this work, is that it, it's a younger way to approach um, a, approach an, an association. You know, So rather than hearing from a senior person talk about user experience for an hour and a half and, and raising your hand and asking questions, they bring um, case studies here. You know, they brought a friend of mine, Aaron Price's LiveCube here and said, guys, let's work on this hands-on and, and learn it. So at the end of the time that you're spending with UX Lab, you have a portfolio piece. You have your thoughts around what you would do, what you would change. You've learned from other people and realized what you missed. Um, that kind of learning in such a short amount of time is, it, it's addictive, it's helpful, uh, and it builds a community of, of the yes people. Mm-hmm. And that's wonderful. I know exactly what you mean in terms of just teaching being a part of you and giving back to the community because that's exactly why I launched and why I'm doing what I am because it's just it's just an amazing experience to be able to create something or learn something or build something and be able to share that with other people who can build their own things or be inspired or just teach you things as well. It's, it's just an amazing experience. I highly recommend anytime anybody does anything as soon as you're done or even in the middle Tell somebody else exactly how you did it. Be completely transparent. Like it's the best experience. I, I absolutely agree. You know, this whole thing with like the friendship groups and so on that we've been doing. I mean, we've done probably at this point about a hundred sessions, but uh, we were talking about it as soon as we did it. And you know, you have that, you have that hesitation of, Oh, well, somebody else is going to take my ideas and go do them. Who cares? You know, honestly, who cares? Because if you can stop at an idea and uh, if other people start start atta- uh, getting themselves attracted to it, that just pushes you to come up with the next one, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's a, it's a great way to stay driven. And honestly, the, the experience that I have teaching, I would never give up, never give up. Uh, you know, I learned so much from being with 
the millennials and kind of learning their way of thinking, what they're okay with, what they're not okay with. I heard four years ago, Facebook was out (laughs) and it was really fascinating to hear why it was really fascinating to see what was coming up instead. And, uh, and it didn't shock me when things like Instagram and Twitter and, you know, and any other kind of social media platform uh, has taken flight as a result of it. Snapchat, especially. Yeah, definitely. Wonderful. Well, this this has been so such an amazing conversation. I'm I'm so happy that you came on the show. Thank you so much for being here. Of course. Thank you so much for the great questions and again the great conversation. This is absolutely my pleasure. Well, I really hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as I enjoyed having that conversation because this was just a fun episode where we got to talk about just really cool stuff. If if you've enjoyed it, please go on to iTunes, leave a rating, leave a review. It really helps me out. It helps other people find the podcast. And until next week, have a good one. (music) 